This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi, everyone. This is Chiaki Santiago with Stories of Win, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Helen Schwartz, currently an assistant professor in the Department of Bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Thanks for letting us interview you, Helen. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to start this interview off um, with a typical question from the Stories of Win, which is, what is your brain origin story? And, you know, how did you become interested in the brain at all? I guess my story is a little bit different. I, I I was always interested in the brain and obviously like the mind and, you know, what makes us who we are, our personality and also all of the, you know, complex mental and neurological diseases, um, you know, that come from, you know, issues with the brain. Um, and I think early on, like even in high school, I was very interested, but I felt like I didn't have the skills necessarily to kind of um, tackle this field. So, for example, it was a lot of biology or um, psychology, and these are subject areas that I was not naturally uh, good at. And so, um, yeah, so my my undergrad, I, I majored initially in computer engineering. So I was I felt like I was it was easier for me to do engineering. Um, and I wanted to do pre-med, so I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and I had a really good friend that I met uh, when I was an undergrad, and she was doing this um, research program as a Europe student. So it's like a summer undergraduate program at Harvard. Mm. Um, and um, so I was at Johns Hopkins at the time, and she was talking about how there's like these brains on the dishes, and she's like working with them and like you know looking at the the connections. And I was so fascinated by like oh I can't believe like she's doing this like she's so young and like undergrad and I didn't know you can even do that kind of work mm -hmm. um and so I she told me like oh yeah you should apply for labs and so I applied for undergrad labs at at Johns Hopkins and luckily there was a lab and Dr. Thakor he accepted me to work in his lab and so I was I stayed there throughout my undergrad and it was really fun it was engineering too it was like building a wireless interfaces to record neural activity. And so it was a lot of fun. I got to, you know, build circuits, uh, break circuits. And um, yeah, so that led me to grad school where I did um, electrical engineering. Sorry, this is kind of long, but- uh, No, no, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, so then I did electrical engineering because I also felt like I wanted to learn more fundamentals that I could actually apply in the future. And uh, my major in Hopkins was biomedical engineering and it was a little bit of everything. And um, and I was really interested in the work I was doing as an undergrad researcher in that lab, which was wireless interfaces. So I do did want to somehow learn more about that, the fundamental concepts of that, and be able to apply that and build new techniques and tools. And so I did uh, that kind of work as a grad student. So I went to Arizona State University working with Dr. John Suk Che, and there we developed uh, microwave backscattering techniques. Uh, so we 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 it was a lot of microfabrication. So yeah. we. Um, I was working in the clean room most of the time, and we made these small microsystems. Um, it was a really complicated process that you have to do. It's like seven layers on one side of a silicon wafer, and then all these seven like multiple processes on the back side. And so a lot of times you you fail, but I really enjoyed it. And we we could also you know model or um, yeah model the operation of the backscattering and the antenna operation with these uh, microscale systems and um, create the microwave circuits. So it was really different. I guess from what I'm doing now, it's a lot of engineering, yeah. and um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it, uh, and I think that at near the end of my grad school, I I knew I wanted to do more biology oriented 
work, um, even though that's not what I had been working on so far. I really wanted to get closer to um, uh, like the clinic and how we can actually use the tools to help people. Um, I know that the techniques I developed with Dr. Che, obviously, these are things that you know fundamentally will change the future technology in the future. Um, but it was more that I wanted to understand the brain and mm. also um, uh, understand how it works. So I really wanted to get closer to that 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 knowledge. Um, so I applied to many many labs uh, for postdoc, um, and um, luckily uh, Dr. Michael Sima at MIT he accepted me into his lab, and he was working with Anne Grabiel and Rob Langer at the time. They had this big project together, um, which was the injectrode to deliver. Um, drugs into precise uh, regions of the brain. Mm -hmm. um, and so there I had the opportunity to work in Anne's lab. Um, mm -hmm. So they were working with uh, monkeys and um, they were doing all sorts of these really cool experiments. And so I also really wanted to work with uh, monkeys because I know that the primates is essential if you want to do any sort of clinical translation work with the tools. Absolutely. Um, and so um, so from there, I sort of, um, I like to use the word, I always tell Anne when I joke around with her that I invaded her lab, basically. <laughs> so I was working in Dr. Seema's lab, or that's where I was supposed to be working. Mm -hmm. And I would go to Anne's lab, sit there in the morning and just shadow the postdocs there, the mm -hmm. scientists, and they would be working with the monkeys and, um, yeah, they would let me help them. So I was helping them develop these, um, sensors. So you just like kind of fabricate these sensors in the microscope and, uh, to measure dopamine using electrochemical methods. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I just kind of, you know, sat there, like watched them, helped them, like yeah. whatever they wanted me to do. Um, I just got involved in the lab and sort of yeah. like, uh, I think Anne eventually just had to accept that I'm going to be in there. <laughs> um, it was funny. I think the lab manager got a little bit irritated that I was there, but we're like really close friends now um, because <laughs> he was like, who is this like invader in, my, in our lab? And is she even like supposed to? It's even in the protocol and things like that. And so, um, yeah, but I was really, really fascinated by the work with the monkeys. So my colleague there, Ken Amamori, um, he was working, you know, with this conflict decision-making task with the monkeys. And it was really about, like, emotional regulation in a way. Yeah. And so he's trying to get at sort of the basis of anxiety, depression, and all of these sort of mental issues. Um, and I think it's such a complex variable to work with in the first place. And Absolutely. I thought... It was just so interesting that these monkeys display um, behaviors that are very familiar to us. And um, the fact that we can actually quantify that mm -hmm. with these sort of simple behavior, not, not simple, but sort of well-designed tasks that Ken had made with Anne. Mm -hmm. um, it was just like really amazing to me. And the fact that I could be sort of like watching that, but also on the, sa the same time developing my own tools sort of to measure like uh you know neurochemical signals and how that might be involved in this because i had no idea like what dopamine was at the time yeah so i was wow. starting to learn <laughs> and um it was just really fascinating it was like a whole like another like it was like going into outer space for me you wow. know um so i just fell in love with the with the research there and i stayed there i was in Anne's lab for i think seven years um and yeah, I really loved the work. I just really fell in love with the work there. Wow, that's amazing. I'm um, that I loved the kind of like journey and you gave us a snippet of how you went from undergrad and, and meeting with your friend to talk about how she was studying circuits all the way into then 
going from engineering to brain and kind of falling back in love with the brain again. Um, I kind of want to like take a step back though and and like elaborate a little bit more on and maybe for the listeners too a little bit about your graduate work as well. Like you were in a very engineering intensive lab, and I was curious, like you know, if you were to give your thesis defense and and maybe like a I don't know, small like sentence that the the audience can understand. Like what how would you describe it? What is like your your elevator pitch of of your graduate work? Right. Yeah. So it's basically like RFID tag for brain activity. Mm. Uh, so um it's a batteryless uh power supply, no power supply um system to record neural activity and then wirelessly communicate it to some sort of a transceiver outside. And we had tested it the most sort of like animal related kind of test we did was with a, a skydic nerve. So we took out the skydic nerve of a frog. Yeah. And then we record the action potentials from there, mm-hmm. the compound action potentials, and we uh, backscatter that back to an external transceiver. You're basically irradiating these uh, microwave signals. So microwave is just a high frequency wireless signal onto that chip that we fabricated. And what happens is that that signal that we send, which is called the carrier frequency, mm-hmm. uh, mixes because of the nonlinear properties of that chip mm-hmm. with the neural signal, the action potential, the electrical, because it's electrical activity, yes. right? So that can mix together that low frequency signal. Yeah. And then that gets mixed to higher order harmonic, which is also something that can be transmitted wirelessly. Oh. So from that chip, it just, it's called backscatters. It backscatters it back, but you don't need any power supply or battery to um, do this operation. So it's a what we call a fully passive technique. Mm. And um, that's what's really neat about it. That's what Definitely. brought me to, to Arizona. Um, and um, this is something now people are using for stimulation, actually. So Interesting. there's a lab, actually, I think one of the labs at Pitt is working on something similar to this where they can uh, wirelessly transmit a signal to this, again, like a f- passive chip mm-hmm. with an antenna and some sort of nonlinear component that uh, you down convert that signal. Yeah. And then you can uh, generate a DC current so you can stimulate the tissue directly. Interesting. And so, um, yeah, you could use it both ways, but I think stimulation is a lot easier because you don't have to worry so much about loss through the transmission medium. You can just kind of blast away. <laughs> well, to some degree, right? Because yeah. we have to consider the specific absorption rate. So, meaning like if you absorb enough electromagnetic waves at a certain frequency, um, it's like a microwave at that yes. point. So, yes. you're going to just burn the tissue. That's why it's called microwaves. <laughs> Um, That's yeah. not ideal. Yeah, yeah. So can you make stimulation patterns that are like equivalent to maybe like neural or other activities? Like, Yeah, you can shape the carrier wave itself to the the signal that you want to transmit into the tissue. And mm. so that's, I think, um, there should be work going on. I haven't really kept up with the field, but it's uh, definitely very, very, I think, exciting, the type of thing you could do with this sort of passive technology. Yeah, wow. So it's batteryless and, and wireless and then allows mm-hmm. you to still record from neural signal. And then I'm assuming that that backscattering that you get, mm-hmm. you're able to um, like delineate the neural signal from there. Yeah, I think that was the goal. Um, so for us, we were able to delineate these compound action potentials. But mm. you know, the compound action potentials from a nerve is so much bigger than the brain activity, I right? See. From what you record extracellularly. Yeah. Really, it's about you know, we're working with microvolts and we work with the brain. And then in the nerve, it's about a millivolt. Mm. So there's still a lot of work to do to optimize um, the, the mixing circuit, what we call mixing circuit, which is the nonlinear properties of, of that system to generate these higher order harmonics yeah. um, that can be reflected back and that we can actually detect the signal. Interesting. Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> 
Okay. Um, and so then the work that you did in Arizona State, the trajectory of it, the technology that you could create, then how did you how did you find MIT? How did you say like, you know what, I want to study and get into like dopamine and all these other things? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think I was also maybe a little bit like I wasn't exactly sure, but I knew I, I really wanted to work with like the brain and I'm really interested in neuroscience for a long time. But I just felt like, you know, this is like a point in my life. Like I should just try out what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, like I did apply to various postdoc jobs that were also in labs that are more engineering oriented. Mm-hmm. And also there was one lab that they had moved to an industry and they had given me an offer, um, which was very, I think, uh, tempting. But yeah, for me, I really like enjoy being in the lab, you know, to some degree, it's sort of like your playground, right? Yeah. Even, even when you're working with your PI, you know, you have this ability to do sort of whatever you want within the goals of the lab, right? And so it's a lot of fun because you're, you're like kind of creating your own thing, right? I think it's great to work in industry because you do get your, your research out into society more readily. And yeah. I think that's where you make a really immediate impact mm-hmm. um which is definitely very important but i think uh for me like it was more interesting to be able to uh, look at the different challenges and also i enjoy i guess you know making my own thing and um yeah just exploring i think yeah definitely and like I, I completely understand that that rhetoric of like you know with industry there might be like a greater impact or there's like a a clear product that's going to be designed for your science, but there's something to be said about the process where you just get to design, to create, to have fun, and um, just really come to your own with the project because you yourself are doing the science. You get to come up with the, like the minute details or right. see like the minute details firsthand. Whereas in industry, maybe they throw out those details. Maybe they say like they want to focus on this specific product, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's almost like hijacking science a little bit. Not to not to like bash the industry. <laughs> Mm-hmm, but like, mm-hmm. you know, I think it hijacks science in a different way. Yeah, it's yeah. impactful, but, you know, different. And, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you read my mind perfectly. Yeah. Okay, so you decided to stick to your love of the brain and, and kind of move into MIT. So how did you, like, you were saying you first started in SEMA lab and then you were kind of like invading Anne's lab and stuff like that. What were the questions that you were asking in the SEMA lab? And how did that translate into the Grabiel lab? Just kind of curious about that project. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, to clarify, I was, you know, I was formerly also still in Dr. Seema's lab. It wasn't just Anne's lab, but I was in both labs. But I think um, because we have this big collaboration with um, with these three PIs, mm-hmm. it was a technology development project. So this, mm-hmm. um, this grant was to develop a device that uh, delivers drugs, uh, measures chemicals, and can do a lot of different things. So it's multifunctional and in deep structures and also for monkeys. Um, and so I think my role in that project was sort of like as the engineering side to develop, help develop this device. And so um, I took on the role of the chemical recording. And the reason for that was um, Anne was very interested in trying to record dopamine in monkeys because at that time it still hadn't been accomplished and many people found it challenging. And of course, for me, like I'm an engineer, this like arrogant engineer, and that's like, oh, why is it challenging? It's like electrochemistry, like there's a book about how it works and it should just work, right? (laughs) Like, I mean, because I think engineer, we always think about the principles and then if you apply the principles, like you should just, it should just work, right? (laughs) um, 
yeah, so that was my role. And I felt like it was too simple of a role because I just felt like this should work. And so yeah. um, another thing that I tried to do was also, because I'm a researcher, I shouldn't just be remaking the wheel, um, but I want to also do some sort of innovation. So it makes something that's better too. And so at the same time as I was trying to up get the carbon fiber electrodes and get the electrochemistry working in the monkey, uh, which was its own project in itself, but um, at, the, at that time I also worked with um, with rats and also trying to develop new techniques to measure these electroactive molecules. And so um, I think at some point I realized like the reason why it's not working is because of this um, inflammatory, uh, this tissue response. Mm -hmm. And um, clearly the, the key variable in addressing that is the size of the devices. So because I'm from a microfabrication background, it was also very, um, it was funny because I think I was like, why are the devices so big when, yeah. <laughs> when I worked with smaller devices in the clean room? Mm -hmm. Like, why hasn't this translated? This is MIT, right? Yeah. And like, I'm from, <laughs> you know, Arizona and mm -hmm. we even make smaller things, right? Yeah. Why, why are they still making? And then it was just funny because like, you know, Anne was describing the DBS electrode and she showed it to me. It's like this millimeter thick lead. And I was like, how can this be used in humans? But um, <laughs> yeah, so I think that's where I tried to uh, apply my background and my skill in microfabrication. So there we try to develop smaller, you know, less what we call microinvasive probes. Yeah. Uh, and so that did work better <laughs> for the rats. And um, we also developed uh, systems for the monkey and that, um, yeah, I mean, eventually we got things to work. And so it was really exciting because um, Anne was such a great mentor, but it was just like, she really pushed us to get this to work to mm. and not give up. Uh, so um, it was really, I think it was a lot of fun because it was, you know, this amazing experience with the colleagues that I was working with, yeah. working with the monkeys, cleaning the chambers, training the monkeys. <laughs> it was just a lot of different things that we were doing. Yeah. And I never had that kind of very multidisciplinary, you know, like kind of experience. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting because I think uh, neuroscience is like basically integration of many, many disciplines. right? And that's the only way it's going to work. Absolutely. Yeah. That's super cool. So before getting into some of the work that you do in your lab, what are the processes of recording from electrical chemical signals? And, and how did you record from dopamine or other or other chemicals? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we use a technique called fast scan cyclic voltammetry. So this is an electrochemical technique where we're basically um, converting the chemicals to an electrical signal um, through this what we call redox reaction. And so for example, dopamine is electroactive. And so when you apply a certain voltage, it'll oxidize or reduce. And we can monitor uh, molecules with a certain amount of specificity based on the redox potential, so the voltages at which the current is generated. Mm. We fabricate this implant using carbon fiber. Carbon fiber is essential because um, it has all the optimal properties to measure these electroactive molecules. It's biocompatible, but it also has very high adsorption of these molecules. And so that basically relates to its sensitivity and also has a high electron transfer that allows us also to make sure that the oxidation and reduction process is fast enough so that we can actually measure these molecules at a fast rate at which they are released and cleared, which is in the millisecond scale. I think it's a really nice technique because in theory, uh, you can use it to differentiate many different electroactive molecules and have this multi-analyte measurement. It's still a lot to be improved for sure. I'm working with a collaborator right now who's working on a different material 
that will allow us to enhance the sensitivity, but also the specificity. So the shape of the redox peaks so that we can actually differentiate the chemicals better, which is not something we can mm. currently do very well with the carbon fiber. To some degree we can, um, but it's, there's some sort of limitations. And so obviously there's a new technique called fiber photometry and that works really well too. I think that a lot of people ask me now, like, why you don't just do fiber photometry? It's a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> it works well. Everyone's doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's something I hope I can also implement at some point. But I think the electrochemistry is, I think, really, um, I think there's different advantages to it. And one of the advantages is that um, you're using a conductive uh, material to measure these you know, chemical signals. And you can also use that same implant for recording electrical activity. Yeah. And so that's something you cannot do with fiber photometry. And then also because of this potential to have a multi-analyte uh, reading, I think that also makes it a very promising tool. Absolutely, absolutely. So from your postdoc uh, science that you created these like implantable devices, you're measuring dopamine signals and hopefully also measuring electrical signals in the brain. From from that, how did you kind of begin your your lab? How did you transition from a postdoc position into your lab? Were there any doubts that you wanted to start your own lab? Or was it kind of just like, I'm definitely going to stay in academia <laughs> um, or anything like that? Yeah. So actually, I think I always wanted to um, have my own lab since uh, I finished grad school. Um, yeah, I was, you know, it's something I always wanted to do. Um, and I guess like the question was like about the timing. So when is a, a good time? Um, and it was definitely, you know, something I had to communicate with Anne mm -hmm. um, and Dr. Seema and I'll make sure we're all on the same page. For the faculty position, you know, it was a lot of ap applying to different places again. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I applied to many places. Um, University of Pittsburgh was the first place I applied to and definitely was a very exciting place to interview at because there's a large neuroscience community, but there's also a large non-human primate research community. And mm -hmm. I think one of the things I really valued and appreciated when I work in Anne's lab that I didn't have much of as in grad school, because I think when you're doing more fundamental engineering, you can do it kind of by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. And with the neuroscience, you really need to work with other people, I think, because um, there's a lot of different challenges, and also, you know, it's very multidisciplinary, and you need a lot. You need a lot of, I think, perspective sometimes too. And I really valued that in Anne's lab, and I could see that there was a big, a, a good community also at University of Pittsburgh, and so that really drew me um, to this place. Um, so. So yeah, I'm, I'm very happy. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's it's also nice too because I, I also realize now thinking about it that the University of Pittsburgh is also joined with like Carnegie Mellon and there's it's like a nice research community that is existing within Pittsburgh itself that, you know, you can have like cross-university type of collaborations as well. Definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I really like that. CMU, Carnegie Mellon University is right next to Pitt. It's just, you can walk um, there and it's really nice because I think everyone is so... Um, open to the idea of collaboration. You mm -hmm. never feel like uh, any sort of friction mm -hmm. or um, competition. It's more like, can we work together to make our community stronger and yeah. to do good research? Because I think everyone is really passionate about their research, which is also, it's just nice to be in that kind of environment. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. And so what would you say from taking your postdoc work into your lab now, 
what are like the main questions of the lab? What are, mm-hmm. you know, we can get into to other things as well, but I kind of want to start with like, what are the main questions? And then kind of get into what are your like hopes and dreams? Like what, what are the things that you're excited about for your lab? Yeah, so my lab is interested in developing. So we continue to develop and apply tools to measure um, neurochemicals. So that includes dopamine and also electrical neural activity and understand its contributions to learning and to disease. And um, in particular, um, you know, we developed a lot of these tools. We established them when I was a postdoc at, with Anne. And so we're bringing these tools uh, to my lab. And it's sort of a foundation of the work that we're starting now. Um, but we also want to optimize them. Like, how can we measure multiple sorts of chemicals and also measure from many different brain regions at the same time? Because we know that the learning process does not involve just the stridum or just <laughs> the cortex, right? Mm-hmm. But it's multi-regional. Uh, and almost any sort of learning task is going to involve many different brain areas. So we want to understand um, you know, the different brain circuits and how they contribute to the learning process. And in particular, I'm very interested in long-term learning. So that could be a learning skills or um, some sort of adaptive uh, uh, behaviors that take a long time. Because I think a lot of uh, what we know now is based on very short-term uh, learning tasks, like reversal learning. And I kind of want to compare the two. My goal is to sort of understand dopamine's contributions to this learning process, but also other brain circuitry. So combining that with our measurements of neural activity, for example, that will give us a better picture of, for example, plasticity, hopefully, and also how that feeds into to learning itself. There's still a lot of stuff to be done in terms of tool development. So, you know, my dream is can we actually measure, you know, dopamine or this um, neurotransmitter release and also measure the neurons that are directly postsynaptic to that that release, and mm-hmm. that way we can really understand the wiring, um, both in the chemical and electrical uh, aspect uh, that drives learning for specific types of behaviors. I think we still have a long ways to go to do that, um, but right now we're we're just you know developing the fundamental, the basic tools, and putting it together, and then uh, working our way from there. That's really exciting. So. Maybe this was in, in um, the Grebiolsema like time, but you know how does this relate to like Parkinson's disease? Like, yeah, I think, so yeah. <laughs> I forgot to mention that. So I am also very very interested in um, you know understanding Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease is a very I think useful disease to study because yeah. there's such a clear deficit uh, and clear hallmark of disease. I think so many people study this right for that reason. There's a dopamine depletion and it causes all sorts of um, problems and there's also this amplification of beta band local field potential. So why, um, yeah, why are these different types of signals uh, changing? And I'm very interested. I think in understanding the source of these dysfunctions, the behavioral deficits. I think it's not always just dopamine, but obviously there's other problems that arise. Whether it's because of the dopamine degeneration, mm-hmm. neuron degeneration, or other sources of pathology um, that we still still learning about so a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of research has been funded for this type of work and um, right now I'm working in the same floor as Rob Turner so which is really exciting because Rob Turner he's done a lot of work in basal ganglia uh, recording in monkeys I mean oh. I would say he's really an expert in mapping out activities related to the motor dysfunctions that you see in Parkinson's he uses MPTP uh, neurotoxins to model mm-hmm. neurodegeneration and Parkinson's disease. Yeah. So it's it's really uh, 
a great resource to have on my floor because um, that's something I always wanted to do when I was in Ansla, but we just never um, got there. Um, and so it'll be one of the things that we really want to do is see how the dopamine signals um, change over the course of neurodegeneration. And, um, and I think Rob has the skill and also he knows how to create these animal models where you can actually create this sort of neurodegenerative process, um, which is not very straightforward because most models that have been used so far, um, at least in monkeys, it's sort of like you give a dose and then the animal's Parkinsonian the next day. Um, but here we're really trying to sort of make that course more graded. And so we can see over the course of um, disease states that you can sort of quantify based on even the metrics that we use for human patients. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of scoring process what happens to the dopamine signals. And so hopefully yeah. that can then be related to the behavioral deficits and that might help bring us closer to actually improving metrics of human diagnosis. Absolutely. One of the issues with Parkinson's disease is, is that by the time the patients are in the clinic and are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, more than like 80% of the dopamine neurons are already gone. And so there's no way to sort of slow down or reverse that process or like at least get them medicated earlier on, which is been shown to help mm -hmm. uh, prognosis. Um, so yeah, I think there's just a lot of stuff to do up there that I'm very excited <laughs> for because I'm working with Rob Turner. I'm also on the same floor as Peter Strick. Mm -hmm. So I just have this really like a superstar team up here. And it's oh. just like, I feel so, I guess like proud, but also very, uh, it's sort of intimidating in a way, mm, right? Because I'm yeah. surrounded by these really well-established researchers, people I've admired, um, just like Anne and Dr. Seema. But I think it's, uh, it's just really a nice, feeling to be able to work with these uh, these researchers and to learn from them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in this Parkinsonian model that you were describing, how long does it take for animals to become Parkinsonian? Well, when I was talking with Rob Turner, and this is also, I think, in some of the publications, um, it can be anywhere from months to, I think, over a year. Oh, wow. Um, but don't quote me on that. But I know that because he <laughs> also worked with the Malon lab in DeLong in Emory, and they, that's where they also did that kind of work. And I, I remember some of the papers um, coming from that group there. Uh, and Thomas Wickman is also there now. Mm, wow. um, I think it went for over a year because they would have these disease states that they'd uh, characterize that were over months long periods. Oh, and wow. it really depends on the monkey. So it's a really tricky technique because every monkey, the same dose will have a very different effect. I see. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of difficult because we only have very few monkeys to work with. Yeah, that, that being dose dependent is very interesting. And like, what is the right. you know, sweet spot? And, and how does that translate to, to like human physiology is yeah, all yeah. very like interesting troubleshooting. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but okay, so you have this specific project of, of trying to develop these devices. And then from there, apply it to translational models, including Parkinson's, then use that technique to understand neural and chemical signaling within the brain. And the hope then I think you described is, is to see it in different brain regions and how that interacts all together within the brain um that just i mean that's really exciting i think we talked a little bit about some of the work that i do but you know from an in vivo electrophysiologist standpoint that is something that we all wish right like we want to see all these different chemicals and how they interact and of course you know the closest we can get to it right now i see is like the you know calcium imaging and then using different calcium fluorescent markers in a wide variety of different cells that express different proteins. And then from there, we can see how they're expressing this or expressing that. But there's something that is like finite about transmitter release and how that interacts with postsynaptic signaling that 
with this technology, that's going to like definitely push the boundaries of what else we can measure in animals and and humans and 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 beyond. So that is such cool work. And um, and one of the things that we we typically like to ask our interviewees is, you know, what are some challenges that you've like faced in academia? This can be like points in time where you reconsidered, you know, being within the academic system, or or it could even just be like, how did you push yourself forward in in times of stress and and because like. This is hard work, you know, like it's not it's never an easy journey, but we're curious about what your challenges were in yours. Yeah, I mean, I think that doing research is like I, I like to tell my students, like it's like 90 percent like just labor, like hard labor. <laughs> and then 10 percent is like I've like done something useful. Right. <laughs> um, it's like but I think you always like wish for that 10 percent. So it's like it's kind of magical in a way. And I there were times, I think uh, many times, actually, that uh I think it's very difficult to push forward when there's a lot of failures mm. and you feel like, you know, um, you know, am I wasting resources? Like think about even the taxpayers to some degree, <laughs> um, even though I don't really like to. Um, but I mean, when I was a postdoc, there were a lot of, uh, I think, challenges because it was really a new field for me yeah. and I knew that. But there were a lot of failures and um i think also when you work with animals you become much more sensitive to those issues like how mm. can i keep doing this when it's well first of all it's a waste of these precious animals but also you know every subject you work with you want to sort of have this i did, did all of this with the subject and you know this is such a valuable uh, subject um but it's not like that in of practice course. and um especially with science versus engineering a lot of it is empirical it's not you cannot just think that your theory or principle is going to work the way that you expect it to be. And so I had to learn a lot of these things, I think, um, the different way of operating, sort of. And um, I think it's also really hard when there's some of your colleagues, maybe people you're working with or not even in the lab that tell you to stop what you're doing or they don't like what you're doing mm -hmm. or they want you to stop what you're doing um, or they might even actively try to stop you. Yeah. And I think that was the most difficult thing because I think uh, working with animals like monkeys so, sort of heightens people's sensitivity to Absolutely. certain things and um, including mine because I also feel very uh, responsible in a way too. When people are telling you to stop, it's very challenging, very hard to keep moving forward um, Absolutely. no matter how much you feel like you want to achieve something. And so I think I was very very, very fortunate because my mentors, so Anne uh, and Dr. Seema, um, they give me support and they tell me, you know, I know what I'm doing is important, but they also sort of, you know, sort of remind me. And I think they also, I know they're on my side. And so I think it's really important that I had really good mentors. I think even my graduate school mentor, he also really pushed me to do well, to make sure I'm happy and very supportive, right, of my future, my future career. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, I did have a lot of challenges, but I was also very lucky because I think I have a lot of colleagues and friends who they went to grad school and they just had to quit the program altogether wow. because they had a mentor who was not supportive or they just faced so much, uh, so many challenges, not even related to the research yeah. that just pushed them down. So, yeah, I think I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, um, and I think mentors are, are definitely like the 
huge stability of academia where that is a, a person that like will always kind of be by your side, validate the science that you're doing and mm -hmm. push you even forward to innovation, which is cool. Like, yeah. I definitely feel the same way in, in like the sense that, you know, my mentor, like the mentors that you have are the mentors that you're going to have for life. And they're going to continuously be supportive of your career because, mm -hmm. you know, they they know what it takes to get to this like specific spot and they want to like kind of push you to to further to further heights. And um, and I think I I really appreciate your your perspective on like specifically, you know, non-human primate research, because I think that's a very humanistic thing to say, which, you know, it's it's of course really important work. And I'm sure a lot of people and will think that it's very controversial. But there is a sensitivity that does come out. I think with larger animals that you even work with, like of course I'm I work with mice. Like there's a there's a different level to it, but there's still a ethical level of, you know, I want to minimize the amount of mice that I'm using for an experiment because I don't want to increase my impact on them. Right. Mm -hmm. And right. I think those measurements become a lot more important when you when you get closer and closer to to a non-human primate and then to a human. It's definitely an important topic and just kind of like shows that like researchers are also trying to be mindful of it as much as possible. Um, definitely. Because it is a a, a resource that we don't want to like extravagantly use. It's not. Right. And when you're working with the animals every day, you build the connections whether you like it or not. Right. And Absolutely. so even with mice, you're going to have a connection. Even with my rats, I have a connection with them. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and it's hard to, I think when you're working with them, you're more sensitive to, to that. It's a challenge outside of research itself that yeah. all scientists will have to deal with. Right. Definitely, definitely. I think that's like the hidden like thing about neuroscience too is like we have like cells that you can work with, but then there is like a whole body systems approach that we want to try to understand so that we can understand brains of different species. And so I think that's a really interesting challenge to to speak about um, because it's definitely, I think, a lot like on our minds for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really great to hear that your mentors were there to like support you as well. Do you think like knowing this challenge, will this change the way that you mentor future scientists that like end up working in, in these specific fields? Is there like a way that or a sensitivity that you feel like you're going to transfer, an ethic that you're going to transfer? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think ethics is hard to transfer. I think everyone has their own like fundamentals sort of mm, beliefs or, yeah. yeah, I think it's hard to transfer that. But I think that, I guess like for me, because I went through a lot of failures, um, I try to be supportive of my students just the way that my mentors were supportive of me and mm -hmm. also um, be kind of responsible for what um, their research output is, right? Uh, I guess like what I mean by that is, you know, if there's failure, I can just say, oh, go try again or just figure it out, right? Yeah. That's one way. But I think, you know, I think it's also important to uh, sit down and work on the problem together with mm -hmm. their students. Mm -hmm. um, and so, or at least, introduce the resources to solve the problem and and that's that's what Anne did for me too so you know I try to be that kind of person it's not someone who I am originally I think because I'm very mm -hmm. much um introverted I, I mean I think most engineers are right <laughs> um, I think it's a stereotype and I you know we usually don't really communicate like our feelings or empathy <laughs> and mm -hmm. but I do think it's super important uh, because um, everyone is so different Maybe some people don't even want empathy, right? But it's just like, I think <laughs> understanding what people need is different, people's needs. And so um, I'm, I'm still learning how to do that, obviously, because I just started my lab. Um, but I've worked with a lot of students uh, when I was a postdoc. And so I, I try to um, just figure out what their needs are, what they want to do, and kind of, um, I guess, like have the research such that it's 
steered towards their own interests and direction. It's the idea of like working with different humans, right? Like, of course, there's situations that all arise, right? And you're going to be able to fix a problem when a problem arises. And the way that you do so is going to be different than the way that your student does or others. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then like just dynamically figuring that out together is like its own challenge. Yeah, definitely. Well, I uh, really enjoyed talking about your science and learning more about what you've done all the way from, you know, being an undergrad inspired by brains to, to opening up your own lab. This is kind of like our fun personal question that we ask interviewees is what are things that you do to de-stress and outside of your academic life? What are things that you take up instead? <laughs> yeah, um, that's a great question. So I think um, I really love the mountains. And so usually mm. I used to go to the Shenandoah Mountain, Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia uh, every year during my winter. I have like this week in the winter where I just go to the cabin by myself and <laughs> uh, like to be in solitude and peace in the mountains and just kind of explore. It's, it's, it's sort of a challenge in itself. So like yeah. going in the mountains for all day. Yeah, I like that because also you, I think when you're away from the research, the lab, you also realize new things when you're outside of that space right mm -hmm. and so i think it's important for people to to kind of step away sometimes to see the bigger picture yeah. right, of what they're doing um and i used to like to to read books um i like the uh, classic novels so dostovsky is one of my favorite authors i used to read him i didn't like to read growing up but i read more when i was a postdoc actually because <laughs> i felt like it would help me write better oh and so i helped my pis write uh, proposals um, that's part of the postdoc job yeah. and um i took up that hobby to sort of help me with that but it was i don't know if it really helped me with that but it was it became like a hobby because i really enjoyed it yeah uh yeah now after covid i started another hobby but i stopped reading <laughs> i feel like i'm taking a break from um from that and then i'm started uh, playing piano so i enjoy doing that also to kind of de-stress Oh, what yeah. kind of music do you like? A classical. classical. Yeah, my favorite composer is um, uh, Tchaikovsky and uh, Chopin. Mm. Um, and so do you try to play? Like, I try. Oh, wow. I just try. That's... I'm still learning. So um, <laughs> I, I used to play when I was a kid growing up. And so oh, then I took okay. like maybe 10, 15 year break. And so I'm just starting again. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's nice. You know, these are hard hobbies. <laughs> So how did you, I mean, the, the gravitation towards mountains, like had that developed when you were a kid or? Yeah, I, um, yeah, I really like mountains. I think uh, when I was a kid, I grew up also like overseas um, because my father was in the military and state department. And I remember when I lived in Egypt, uh, we went to Mount St. Catharines mm. and it was just this beautiful memory um, being on the top of the mountain. Uh, I remember it was so painful to get to the top for me and <laughs> yeah. I even... Um, as soon as I got to the top, I threw up on my friend's shoes um, because it was just for me like very like I'm not very um, back then I wasn't really in good shape mm -hmm. you could say and but it was just so beautiful like no matter how painful the journey was yeah like I could relish this uh, beauty mm -hmm. um, and it's like a never ending like memory and it's like forever lasting memory and so yeah it's just I think I, I really enjoy it yeah definitely kind of reminds like. A symbolism to academia right you get to no matter how challenging it is like the end and the site of it is like a core memory that you build yeah. right right yeah but you get all the painful stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you endure all of that and yeah then you finally get to the top yeah the that's a really cool uh like i'm sure you've traveled a, a lot you know and and um going to egypt and, and seeing that like that must have been 
absolutely beautiful. What drew you to Shenandoah? Like why why Virginia? Oh, my my family, we live in Virginia. I see, yeah. I see. Okay, okay. And so that was kind of like a home for you. Yeah. Do you yeah. still take that up yearly? Do you just like go by yourself? I, I want to start again. So since I started my lab, I sort of take a break because um I feel like I need to be in the lab to set it up mm -hmm. and I'm going to hopefully start again someday. So. <laughs> that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's escape from Pittsburgh. And <laughs> yeah. 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 Have my students take over. And <laughs> go on a break. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, this was really fun and um, I really appreciate you letting us interview you today, Helen. Thank you, Chiaki. Of course. Of course.